Serious protests in southwestern Iran that began over a water shortage are now spreading throughout the country and even to the capital as demonstrators are currently marching through the streets of Tehran chanting death to the dictator. Welcome back to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I'm Lisa Daftari. That's the latest we have for you on a story we have been following and reporting on closely here at the Foreign Desk. The official death toll, which we will not and cannot verify here, is four people have been killed in the days of protest there. Most believe that that number is significantly higher. The internet has also been cut off, preventing much of the citizen journalism, which we rely on coming out of Iran. Demonstrators began protesting in the southwestern Khuzestan province in reaction to severe drought, although as is always the case with Iran, uh, it's just the proverbial straw. We've seen gasoline protests, egg protests, the bazaar protests, truckers protests, teachers protests, women's protests, university protests. But when you have people on the street in these numbers willing to risk their lives, you know that it's more than the specific subject of the protest. Yes, there is a drought, but the people in Iran are telling us that they've been sucked dry in many more ways. The handling of the coronavirus, the economy, their terror sprees and funding suicide missions in Hamas and Hezbollah and others, and of course, the regime's heinous human rights crimes. Also on today's show, this as a delegation of Iranians travel from the United States to Israel to bring the dream of the Cyrus Accords to life. The Cyrus Accords, of course, an idea penned by friends to this show, Victoria Coates and Len Kudrakovsky, is the hope that one day the people of Israel and Iran normalize relations the way that we have seen in the Abraham Accords between Israel and several Arab nations. For today's discussion, I'd like to invite back to the show two of our regular guests. Let's begin by introducing Mr. Len Khodorkovsky, served at the State Department as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Global Public Affairs. He was also a senior advisor to the U.S. Special Representative for Iran and the Chief Marketing Officer of America's Economic Diplomacy. Prior to joining the government, Len was an advertising executive for more than two decades, where he helped Fortune 100 companies develop global ad campaigns and grow their brands. Len is joining us from Israel, where he was part of the delegation of Iranians who went to visit Israel. Uh, and we'll get to that in a moment. And of course, our second guest, the Honorable Mr. Bijan Kian, a twice confirmed advisor to the White House under three consecutive administrations, reporting directly to Presidents Bush and Obama and serving as a deputy lead on President Trump's landing team for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, also an Ellis Island Medal of Honor recipient, globally recognized expert on the economy and national security. Welcome to the show to both of you. Good to be with you, Lisa. Thanks so much. Len, let's start with you. Um, I, I want to know all about this trip. Uh, it got quite a bit of, of media traction. Of course, this was organized by the Institute of Voices uh, for Liberty, uh, which both of you and then myself are a, a part of. Um, perhaps you can tell us a bit about the, uh, the, the trip. How would you characterize it? How did it go? Well, where, where do I start, Lisa? Um, first of all, as you said, um, Institute for Voices of Liberty did a great job organizing this uh, really historic mission of Iranian dissidents who uh, went to Israel to uh, accomplish really a couple of things. First, it was really important to show that the Iranian people are different than the Iranian regime. And um, uh, the, the friendship between the Iranian people and the people of Israel goes back to 2,500 years to Cyrus the Great. Cyrus is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible 23 times. Uh, and so there's great respect between the two people. And it was really important on the heels of the idea that, as you mentioned, we, 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 we kind of uh, you know, brought into the public about the future Cyrus Accords. It was really important to bring that into reality. And so um, I'm thankful that Institute for Voices of Liberty uh, was able to um, organize a trip of serious people who went to Israel to uh, stand in solidarity with the people of Israel uh, just after rockets were flying at them from Hamas and Islamic Jihad, both, of course, the proxies of the Iranian regime. Uh, and they were able to go to a number of places to stand in solidarity with Israeli people. And the second uh, reason for the trip was really to rekindle those warm 
um, ties that the Jewish people and the Persian people have going back millennia. Uh, and as, I, as I've said in the past, the last 42 years under the Islamic Republic is just a blip. It's a historic anomaly. And uh, we look forward to the day, I, I anticipate sometime soon, when uh, the descendants of Cyrus the Great and descendants of Abraham will rekindle their warm ties. And this was a, a step in that direction. Wonderful. And I, and I love your shirt and, and the reminder uh, of what the Cyrus. message is, right? Um, I want to follow up, um, Len, you know, how... I wish I were a fly on the wall and, and, and could have joined you on, on this delegation and in, in, in seeing the reaction um, of these Israeli officials and you know members of, of the government and military and so forth. How how were you received by the Israelis on this trip? You know, we, we thought we'd be received well. Uh, again, you know, there, there's a good reason to anticipate that the bonds between the Iranian people and the people of Israel are strong. Uh, the 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 only animosity that exists um, is between the uh, uh, the the Islamic regime that's in Tehran for the last 42 years. Uh, the people of Iran, the people of Israel, have no problem with each other. So we anticipated receiving them, uh, you know, being being warmly embraced. Um, but of course, you never know until you you get on the ground. And and our our anticipation was really proven to be. Uh, true. It was actually more than we hoped for. Uh, uh, you, you, you really saw the people of Israel um, warmly embrace the delegates, um, you know, like brothers, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. there, was, there was not any uh, hint of discomfort. There, were, there was actually enthusiasm for the possibilities that exist mm -hmm. between the people themselves, and of course, the, the delegates were the representatives of what what's possible somewhere down the road. So, I, I, I I'm, frankly, I was um, I was um, thrilled with the reception that everybody got, and I, I was thrilled that mm -hmm. people actually got to talk to each other, look each other in the face, um, talk about the issues, and and uh, behave like human beings. Frankly, right. Uh, you know, especially coming off of the most recent conflict between Israel and and Hamas, um, you know, it, it kind of brings into question the world world opinion about Israel, right? And we saw a lot of social media diplomacy, right, support or animosity for Israel being displayed on people's Facebook and Instagram and elsewhere. But this is an instance where that diplomacy was brought to life. It's one thing to post it, and it's another thing to get on an airplane and actually go there and to show your support. Um, Bijan, you know, I, I know we've talked about this from, you know, during that time of that conflict, I remember getting that call from you, um, getting the breaking news as, as you're always so, um, you know, always have this, these, this wonderful and optimistic lens about the Middle East. Um, and, and given your background, it's, it's heartwarming that you have an optimistic view of, of what will be. Um, tell us more about, you know, obviously you're one of the founders at IVOL, the Institute for Voices of Liberty, um, how this, the idea for this trip came about. Um, did you think that there would be any challenges and, you know, what, what next? Is this a one-off or are there plans to continue this down the line? Excellent questions, Lisa. I'm delighted to be with you and Len, my dear friend. Uh, you know, you and I talked about uh, how, you know, the officers at the Institute for Voices of Liberty started thinking about this, planning this. Uh, you know, it all started with uh, when our dear friends and, and colleagues, uh, Victoria Coates and Len Khodorkovsky started talking about the Cyrus Accords. And we heard that and we immediately, immediately understood the significance of what uh, Len and Victoria had, uh, had introduced. Uh, a great, great idea whose time was absolutely right. Perhaps uh, never too late, but uh, maybe it should have been done a lot earlier. So that was the motivator. So we went to Israel, when I say we, uh, the delegates uh, uh, went to Israel. I was talking to Adam Lovinger this morning, who uh, led the mission together with my colleague, Dr. Amir Amidi, who also serves on the board of directors of the Institute, Eyeball. Uh, I, I, asked, uh, I asked Adam, I said, Adam, let's talk about why did we go there? And uh, what were we trying to accomplish? And now that we're back, 
have we accomplished it? Where are we with that? And Adam and I talked about it. You know, uh, Adam was reminding me that tyrannies are always interested in erasing history. They live on that. It's such an existential issue for tyrannies. They have to erase history. And the big goal for us, twofold, one was to go there to Israel and tell Israelis, look, we are, we are friends. We have never been, we've never been at war. We've never had a problem. And uh, we are not, we Iranians, we are not part of the Iranian regime that supports, supplies, and funds those missiles that are raining down on the people of Israel. That's not us. We wanted them to hear that. And, uh, and of course, there was a bigger, a bigger goal. A bigger goal was, uh, and you asked the right question, was this an event, a one-off, a tourist, uh, you know, exercise? No, no, this is a program. This was the first step of a program to be able to do the opposite of what the Islamic Republic wants to do, to erase history. We want to build a wall against that. That wall would actually be a bridge, a bridge that would rekindle, just like my dear friend Len mentioned, rekindle the, uh, not rekindle, it's there, it's there. I mean, it's not even renewing it, it's there. They feel like they're cousins, they're related, you know, they're mm -hmm. they're my Jewish friends who, uh, I, my family comes from northern Iran, primarily, and they're Jewish uh, friends who are Westerners, and their DNA shows that they also came from northern Iran. So it's more than, more than just feelings and, well, it's nice to be, no, we are related, truly related. Our history is shared. And Islamic Republic wants to erase all of that. Well, we're not going to let them do that. And just like you said, it doesn't matter. There's COVID, there's travel restrictions, uh, there's all kinds of barriers. But when people are determined, just like Len and Adam and Amir Hamidi and, and others, Ben Tabatabai and Barahman Kalaye and others who were determined to go, Major Beitolai, you know, former Air Force fighter jet pilot. Uh, he just had an operation, uh, but he got on a plane. And he went there. He was determined. This was not a one-off tourist attraction. This was a very big step on the uh, first step, perhaps, on a program taken on by the Institute for Voices of Liberty. And what we bring back? Well, we bring back the thoughts on both sides on finding a counterpart in uh, in Israel with the Institute to be able to continue building this bridge. And there's tremendous support, and tremendous, uh, tremendous enthusiasm inside Iran, inside Iran. You know, these days it's a lot easier. We don't need to see surveys. I, I tweet something and the responses to that tweet is going to tell me immediately right. how people feel about it. Yes, and that was my next question. How, what kind of feedback did you get from the people of Iran about this trip? I know that I did see the the, the cyber bullies come out, and that can just be one person or you know an army of, of, of people working for the Islamic Republic. We're going to put that aside for a moment because they're always there. I could tweet about the weather, and they'll you know say something yeah. not so nice. So, you're right. You're right. But, you know, uh, I'm sure Len knows, because Len and I have talked about this, and Victoria as well, and Adam and others, that the word Cyrus Accords now reverberates throughout throughout the active, active uh, youth in Iran. The, the name Cyrus the Great is enough to uh, light up their enthusiasm on its own. And when you hear Cyrus Accords, when, when, they, when they think about the future that this could have for them, it's a source of hope. Mm -hmm. It's a source of belief that the future is going to be a lot better than this 42 years of misery and death and disease and tyranny mm -hmm. and ineptitude and kleptocracy. And I can go on and on if you find a word that describes something absolutely horrible please add it to my list <laughs> that is that is the islamic is i call him islamist caliphate it's a caliphate you know they call themselves a republic they're not a republic 
they're a bunch of gang gangsters who are running out of bullets and they want to sit down and negotiate. So I am really interested in hearing, especially Len's perspective on, you know, what is the policy objective for this administration? I mean, I admire and respect the individuals in this administration. They're professionals. I have a lot of respect for them. And right. not for one moment do I think that they would forego, you know, national security interest of the United States in favor of anybody. It doesn't mm. matter. I like to believe that they're very capable, very well-educated, mm -hmm. very experienced people. My question is, how come? These very well-respected, very well-educated, mm -hmm. very well-experienced people are pursuing something so wantonly useless. We'll come oh, back to that. We'll, so, we'll come back anyway. to that. But I, I, I want to continue on with the, the people of Iran Please. and I actually want to take a moment to contextualize what you said. And I thought that was it's very, very profound. And, and maybe I should take a moment to just expand on why would the young people of Iran, you know, find so much nostalgia in hearing about Cyrus or even hearing about anything from their parents' generation. And that is, you know, as you said, um, Bijan, you know, a, a such a romantic time for them. They they really have this phone nostalgia. I say it because I have it myself, even though I'm an Iranian who was born in the United States. I listen to my parents' stories of a utopia that used to exist in the 60s and the 70s. So um, it's not surprising that they would have, you know, even more of a romanticized this, uh, you know, optimism about a time that obviously they didn't live through, but, but read about in history and um, would gravitate towards that. But speaking of um, announcements and breaking news that we just touched upon this, this uh, delegation that went. Um, we have some more breaking news on the show today. Uh, quite a significant announcement that Bijan and Len and others at the Institute uh, for Voices of Liberty have been working on. Uh, and I want to read a short statement that Bijan sent me um, earlier this week before releasing this news. In the face of all the suffering, devastation, and injustice forced on the people of Iran by the kleptocracy that's ruling over them, we call on our friends in the Congress of the United States to establish an Iran Human Rights Caucus that will hear the cries of the Iranian people and demonstrate the support of the American people through its duly elected officials from both parties. This is tremendous. I mean, um, both of you, it's, it's, it's really an honor to have you both here because you are making such tremendous strides um, and focusing on the people of Iran, which has been probably the mistake for the last four decades is to forget the people in, in Iran. And now we have 80 million people that can be our biggest ally and, and we're turning our backs on them, forgetting about the fact that they could help us. And here you are calling for a committee that will focus just on the people of Iran, their cries, the human rights crimes that take place in Iran every single day. Bijan, can you expand on this idea? Um, how is it? How will it be released further from this point? And uh, how do you see this vision coming to life? Well, that's a very good question. But uh, first, the first part of your question, you asked the question about the enthusiasm of the youth in Iran. Uh, you know, let me make the, the, the question a bit more complicated. Uh, uh, you said, what is it that attracts them? Well, uh, when you consider that 80%, uh, 75, 80% of the population in Iran are, are below 40 years old. They're younger than 40 years. They don't remember what it was like to be living under a different government, under a different system. They don't remember that. However, watch them. They go to the tomb of Cyrus the Great in thousands with such enthusiasm. Why? Because they believe in their roots and against the government who wants to erase that history. This is their response. So when they hear Cyrus Accords, they really, really focus, uh, really focus on this as their future. They want to go beyond this Islamic Republic in Iran as a terrorist kleptocratic, uh, kleptocracy that's ruling over them. So they want to do that. Now, uh, a little bit about the Institute, as both of you know, the Institute is a little different from other organizations. The Institute doesn't claim to want to advocate for anything other than what the people of Iran are, are saying, what they're asking for. We want to be uh, reflecting their voices. And that's what we do. Now, 
people of Iran are saying, you know, President Biden, Congress of the United States, we know you are sitting there protecting the best interest of the United States. But see, with this Islamic Republic, where are we going? Islamic Republic in Iran is just devastating the country from an environmental point of view, from life quality in general. Where are we headed? If you drag your feet in sitting at the negotiation table forever, you say it's not forever, but it looks like it's forever. It's been for years and there's no progress, only step backwards. So what we say, what we say is please reconsider your policy objective. Please learn more about this regime and reduce your expectation of any chance of success. Suspend the talks, suspend the talks. This will give people of Iran a notion that, okay, United States is looking after their own interests. You don't have to look after the interests of Iranian people. Just don't hurt them by making a deal with an entity that's ruling over them and imposing their tyranny on them. Don't do that. That's what they're saying. Now, you know, we, we are here to, uh, the Institute is there to educate and reflect the voices of freedom-seeking people of Iran, those who have rejected, denounced the entirety of the Islamic Republic. And this is this is part of that. So um, let, me, let me just say that uh, there's been talks with individuals in Congress who are uh, very much supportive of this uh, idea. We want to give this a community. This is not really just the Institute trying to do this. There's a community. We all want to move forward and say, please, listen to the cry of people of Iran who are getting shot in the streets. And you, you mentioned it. We see these uh, all these uh, videos that are thanks to citizen journalism coming out. Uh, so that's what that's what's happening, really. What's happening is there's a call from a community of constituents. These are voters. These are people who live here. They also care about what's good for this country, our country, the United States of America. And this is what we do. We try our best to carry the voices and give reasons. Give reasons. And we're sure policymakers understand. Understand what is the cost of dragging their feet and raising the cost of solving the problem. Because every day that we sit there and say, well, you know, there are moderates here, there, no, no, no. They don't understand. I'm sorry, I say that respectfully, respectfully, because I don't want to say they don't understand anything, but they don't understand enough. They need to study deeper, understand exactly. You know, problem is everything is in English and the context changes in culture. They cannot read the principle 45 of the Constitution of Islamic Republic as to what it says. Really, the Arabic word is very telling. It leaves no doubt in anybody's mind. So, uh, yeah, we, we are very, very enthusiastically optimistic. Uh, and we have no other way. And you, you said I look, at, I look at things in a positive way. Uh, I do that for uh, a good reason. One, when it comes to, to Iran, I believe in the competence of Iranians. They're patient people. They wait for a long time. But when that patience ends, I would say to the mm -hmm. enemies of Iranian people, watch out. Watch out because Iranians are, Iranians are nice, kind people. But when their patience ends, and you know what, Lisa and Len, I think you both witnessing right now what it means when the patience ends. It has ended. It has ended. The emperor has no clothes. And somebody shouted that out. Death yeah. to the dictator. They're talking directly to Khamenei, mm -hmm. the person who makes all the decisions. No, absolutely no, no shyness in that. It's mm -hmm. done. It's done. 42 years, they said, death to America, death to Israel. And now the Iranian people are saying, death to you. Now, I'm not going around promoting, shouting debt to this and debt to that. I'm just saying that's what they're doing. Right. That's the reality. The evolution, the evolution of the movement. Um, is that, that's the reality. That's what's happening. They have risen. Mm -hmm. They have, and today, Tehran rose. It's really important, Lisa and, and Len. Len, you've been a professional watching these for, for a long time. But, uh, you know, the dilemma 
for the central government is, okay, what's the most important asset? Tehran. Okay, if I put all my resources protecting my most important asset, then how a very wise very wise analyst uh, was telling me this uh, today that look it's important to them to protect Tehran if they do they don't have enough resources to be able to send to the provinces so if they go to the provinces then they leave the most prized asset the most important place unattended mm -hmm. they have a dilemma they have a dilemma this is not you know wishful thinking um, I even shared with with my colleague I said look uh, you know, somebody is saying, well, this may be a short-term move. Maybe maybe Tehran rising is really not very good because they, they will suppress everything. But then my friend actually opened it up for me and said, no, that's not the situation. And, you know, it's good to talk to people in Iran because they see things a lot better than we do from a distance. And I encourage people in government, please reach out, talk to real people. Yes. You know, stop talking to Mr. Zarif. You know, he knows he's just a liar, you know, habitual liar. He's a pathological liar. I think he just can't say anything that has <laughs> anything to do with the truth. So anyway, exciting times, exciting yeah. times. Uh, so, a lot yeah. of bad things are happening, but a lot of good things can be uh, expected in the future. Yeah, you know the the idea is is just wonderful. This this uh, caucus and and committee. But how about in terms of strategy length? Uh, why focus on, on besides for the fact that it's the right thing to do? But we're talking about politics and government here. But um, you know, why focus on human rights? Is this going to accomplish something in terms of policy? Well, you know when when. Uh... Um, we were in office, um, we made a concerted effort to pay attention to the people in Iran. Uh, it was uh, strategically important for us to distinguish between the Iranian people and the regime that has oppressed them for 42 years. So um, human rights was definitely one of the pillars uh, of our policy. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we, we knew that in order to solve the Middle East, we have to solve Iran. And uh, you can't solve Iran without paying attention to the people of Iran. So um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a core component of, uh, of, of trying to progress from where we are. Uh, you know, so obviously, we've made some progress in the neighborhood through Abraham Accords. The Iranian people deserve no less. They deserve a relationship with their neighbors that is productive, uh, uh, that could lead to peace and prosperity. They've suffered long enough. And as Bijan said, uh, the, the regime no longer has any legitimacy, any, any hope of legitimacy uh, among the people. And, uh, you know, as you're seeing them take to the streets this week, last week, last month, last year, uh, the, the trend is obvious. They've had it. Uh, and it's just a matter of time before... Right. Uh, they they uh, uh, they they embrace the destiny that they deserve, uh, which is uh, to uh, you know to to live uh, like a rich civilization that they're uh, that that's at the root of uh, of Iran. Uh, you know, you were talking about young people. Everybody wants to be proud of the place where we live, or where they live, and you know it's hard for these young people under forty to be proud of what's happened over the last forty years. So what do you look to? You know, there's fortunately, there's a lot to look back to. There's 2,500 years before the last 40 years mm -hmm. of a rich, um, impressive culture that they could be proud of, that they've heard perhaps their parents talk about, their grandparents talk about. Uh, that, that can be, that can come back. You know, you know I, I, I shouldn't even say that. That's never left. The idea of Cyrus uh, being... Uh, an important figure in the in, in the Iranian society is true today as it was 40 years ago. That's why uh, people still revere and go to the tomb of Cyrus. That's why they're they're proud of uh, the the uh, human rights and tolerance that Cyrus stood for. And uh, you know, uh, to, to take it back to the mission uh, that uh, we just had here in Israel. Um, you're, you're talking about, um, you know, a couple of millennia worth of um, uh, of history. You, you're, you're, you know, there, there's there's 
a lot to build on here. And, um, and, and that's frankly what, what we're trying to do. And um, uh, I should also say that as we were here in Israel with the Iranian dissidents, and uh, it was an optimistic trip. It was a future-looking trip. Um, we knew that the people of Iran were out on the streets and they were dying of thirst. And, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, I tweeted during the trip that, you know, our feet are here in Israel, but our hearts are in Iran because uh, it's heartbreaking for, uh, you know, for, for, for human beings to be put in a position where they don't have enough water to survive. That's, that's absurd in a country of 80 million people with a rich civilization Mm -hmm. uh, that has tremendous natural resources. Unfortunately, the corruption and the mismanagement and the ineptness that Bijan referred to have uh, have stolen all of that from the people of Iran. And it's time right. to give it back to them. But Len, I want to follow up with you. Um, what could focusing on human rights or a committee such as this, um, A, do you think it's a go? You think it'll happen? And B, if it does, best case scenario, how could it or will it affect policy? I mean, what could a committee like this do? Outline human rights abuses? I mean, do they not know this already? I mean, what will it take to educate the rest of the world, particularly in Washington, D.C., about the realities of what's going on inside Iran? Well, I, I, I would say this. Um, a, a lot of people in Congress care about Iran issue. But a lot of the thinking in Washington is around the nuclear issue because that's been the shining object for the last six years or so. Why is that? Well, you know, from a national security perspective, uh, the traditional thinking is uh, obviously the United States and Israel and people on uh, uh, nations on the front line of the regime cannot afford for the world's top state sponsor of terrorism to attain a nuclear weapon. Uh, that's that's unthinkable. And so, you know, for, for good reason, people focus on that issue because, uh, you know, it, it, you, you, you just, you know, you cannot have a situation where, um, where, where the mullahs are armed with a nuclear weapon and are at the very least able to blackmail and extort everybody mm -hmm. um, around them um, and, 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 and uh, secure their power. Uh, so that's a, that's that's the non-starter. So for, for, that's a, it's, there's a very good reason why people focus on that. However, um, in the Trump administration, we we the reason President Trump left the deal is because in and of itself, uh, focusing on a nuclear issue does not solve the Iran problem as a whole. Uh, the, the the Islamic Republic is a threat to the world. It's a threat to its neighbors, it's a threat to its people, and not just because of the nuclear issue. They don't have a nuclear weapon yet, but they do have guns. They do have conventional weapons. They, they are, you know, for the last 40 years, the uh, top state sponsor of terrorism. They're building missiles. Um, they, they, you know, they, they're, they're assassinating people all over the globe. Mm -hmm. We just had a couple of weeks ago um, the regime trying to kidnap an American citizen, and and bring her back to Iran for likely execution. I mean, you, you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, another journalist was kidnapped recently, Ruhal Azam, uh, where um, he, he, he was enticed back and uh, made to confess on TV. And, uh, you know, of course, a false confession, tortured uh, and then executed. So th this, is, this is a symptom of a larger problem, which is why you can't really deal with the Islamic Republic just on a nuclear issue. You have to deal on uh, all of these um, destructive, malign activities right. that the regime that the regime does. Um, so what, why, what, that, that's, that's probably why human rights has taken a back seat over you know, a while to the national security issues of, uh, that, that the regime poses. However, um, I think in the last four years, we made a distinct effort to include human rights in the matrix of dealing with the Islamic Republic, because we understand that you cannot solve uh, the malign nature of the regime without dealing with the, uh, with, with, with the primary victims of the regime, which are the Iranian people. Right. And so 
when we, when we talk about the maximum pressure that people usually associate with the Trump administration uh, being, you know, economic sanctions and things like that, it was also the pressure that the Iranian people put on the regime by taking to the streets and by, uh, you know, by, by, by sending a message to the world that they deserve uh, 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 to be treated as human beings, uh, that the regime has, has simply, dis, you know, sim simply has not done. All of the promises that Ayatollah Khomeini made in 1979, none of them have come true, and people right. see that, and they're sick of it. And uh, so, so the large part of, of trying to get a human rights conversation going here in Washington is, you know, to some extent, a matter of education, because people, you know, our decision makers need to understand Iran is much broader than just a nuclear problem, but also it's, it's a strategic way to... Uh, to get buy-in as to, um, you know, how to solve that issue. You're seeing similar kind of thinking happening right now uh, regarding Cuba, um, right. you know, right. where people are in the street. Venezuela, not too long ago. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can't solve these issues without addressing the people's needs. And, and this needs to be a core component of that conversation. Right. And, but Len, my last follow-up question for you is that, you know, um, both, if you want to compare even the Obama administration to the Trump administration, let's say the both goals and, and currently the, the Biden, you can say that that's just like the Obama um, era, is to retain Iran from, from, from you know, at, at the point there are, not to further their weapons uh, program. One through pressure, which is the Trump administration, and one through appeasement. Uh, and, you know, it's just, just so paradoxical. We want to punish you, but we're going to appease you till we get there. We're going to give you money till we get there. We're going to remove the sanctions till we get there. And then you look at, even if you want to compare the Obama era to the Biden era, it wasn't a good deal by any means. But things have gotten even worse. We had at least an Iranian regime that tried to appear somewhat moderate. They put Rouhani in front, somewhat tried to play the role of we are now joining you know, the global community and we will try to change our behavior in X, Y, and Z ways. Obviously, that mask has completely come off and it has become even harder to whitewash their rhetoric, their actions, their claim to uh, enrich uranium to 60%. They say they don't want to deal with Biden until their new president, who is a butcher, comes into office. So, you know, what? what's next for the leaders in Washington, D.C., from where you are seeing it? What's next for them, where they're trying so badly to piece this together, but yet the people in Iran and the government itself are telling a very different story. We cannot go forward with a nuclear deal. We are, you know, there's such a big rift right now that cannot be bridged. So what will the Biden administration do next? Well, I, I, I wish I were more optimistic about what the Biden administration is going to do. Uh, unfortunately, the trajectory of what the Biden administration is doing has been uh, in, in the wrong direction for a number of months now. Uh, seemingly, the more strident the regime gets, uh, the more concessions the Biden administration offers. And uh, that, that doesn't make any sense to me or, or nor should it to anyone else. Uh, essentially, what the Biden administration is telling the regime is, go ahead and behave badly, you, you know, and, and we'll reward you for it. And so what does that look like? What does the reward look like? The reward looks like we're going to give you money to conduct all of your malign behavior, so to, to threaten our allies, to threaten Americans, to kidnap American citizens, to build your missiles, to continue your nuclear program, that's what the money is going for. So, uh, it, it, you know, I, I know that the people in the Biden administration must be smart, but they're sure not acting all that smart, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very concerning. Um, look, uh, the, I... I the, the selection of Raisi is very telling. Um, I think uh, Ayatollah Khamenei basically has come to a point where he says, or he thinks that he's dealing with a weak administration in the United States that's going to give concession after concession. It doesn't even matter who is selected for the presidency. Right. As you said, if there was any pretense before with Rouhani uh, and Zarif as you know, these fake moderates that uh, that they wanted to put on the show for the world, uh, there's no pretense anymore. He's basically selected 
the vial of the vilest people for the presidency, a mini-me, uh, a, a mini-Hamenei, mm -hmm. uh, the guy who has the blood of thousands of innocent people on his hands. Uh, he's not even pretending to, uh, to, to make uh, uh, good faith gestures to the West because it seems that he assumes that it doesn't matter that the West is going to make concessions regardless of who he chooses. And uh, from an American national security perspective, from, the, from our allies' national security perspective, and from the perspective of the human rights of the Iranian people, this is all backwards. I don't understand the incentives that the Biden administration is trying to provide here for the Iranian regime to, uh, to, act, um, you know, to act responsibly. It makes no sense to me. No, to me either. Um, but uh, we we have you guys here to make sense of all of this. And uh, Bijan, you're somebody I, I always um, call and say, Bijan, look inside your crystal ball and tell me what's going to happen. And I ask you that not because you make um, predictions, but because you know and you have a finger on the pulse of what's going on on the ground. Um, one thing that I, I would always frustrate me about, you know, the panels and the discussions and the podcasts about foreign policy in Washington, D.C. would be that, you know, there would be no constructive advice or no strategy to move forward. Uh, and I want this conversation, I want people who view this program to say, this is what's happening, this is what can be done, and this is the way I can support them, regardless of where I sit. Uh, and, you know, can you tell our viewers, um, you, you told me last, I think we spoke last week, we speak a lot, so I think this was our most recent conversation, so maybe three, four days ago, you said to me, Lisa, this time it's different. And um, I want you to explain to the viewers what you mean by that, you know, what is the political and, and, and social and, and cultural environment in Iran right now? Um, why is this time any different? And um, what, what do you see happening? Well, you know, we can always look at what's in front of us and then have our own judgments. Uh, this time is different because this time you have the executive branch headed by a killer, uh, a butcher, as you called him. You have the legislative branch by, headed by another killer. Uh, in, in fact, these aren't just adjectives I use for, you know, these individuals. This is uh, following their own statements. Khalibov, uh, who heads the legislative, uh, is famous uh, in the students' uprising. Uh, he was advocating, he was the one who was advocating for throwing students uh, down from their dormitories' windows uh, to, to respond. And uh, he's famous uh, for his uh, brutality. So then you come to the judiciary. The judiciary is headed by a killer as well, who uh, uh, took uh, part shoulder to shoulder in terrorizing the Iranian people for the past 42 years. So uh, you see, it's different because this time we can't have uh, real respectable diplomats who say, you know, as uh, Churchill said, jaw, 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 keep talking, and you know, you have to negotiate and you have to put diplomacy into good exercise, all of that. There is no excuse. There are no moderates. That's it. We're done. Executive branch, legislative branch, judicial branch, all killers, all united. So on the other hand, it's slightly different because people don't have anything to advocate for. Those factions in Iran that says, oh, I'm a reformer. I want to follow the former prime minister who was a killer at the time, uh, but then reformed, or the former speaker of the Majlis, the parliament, who was also very happy to witness uh, extra judicial killings that went on without saying the word advocating for them. They're not there anymore. They're gone. Now, uh, what's different this time is very interesting that, you know, Len can speak to this. Uh, one of the challenges for diplomats is that diplomacy is not for the streets. Diplomacy is for closed doors. Diplomats don't like, don't like their, uh, don't like to brag about their successes because it makes negotiations, you know, very difficult. But, uh, People who've been in this for a long time listen to, I haven't talked to Secretary Blinken, but I've listened to him. What does he say? He said, we don't have endless patience. Wait a minute. Things mm -hmm. like, things are not done when the Iranian foreign ministry, you know, starts the drums, oh, we made agreements. 
we hear Secretary Blinken saying, it may be strange that someone like me is trying to see a little bit of positive, but I am an optimist. I like to be an optimist. I like to be a realist all the time, but optimist on the margins of being a realist is helpful. I believe this administration is not really clear about their policy goals. They're not really, they're just taking the big headline of, okay, peace is better than war, of course. And then we will bring Islamic Republic into the community of nations. Impossible. Impossible. It is like it is like um, asking a fish to eat a steak. It's just not possible. It's just not there. Again, not the nature of this. We're running out of time, but I, I want to ask you a few short questions, and I want to get your answers on these things. Do you think, yes or no, we're at a tipping point with the people of Iran? We're past the tipping point. We're past the tipping point. Past what? the tipping point. Point of no return. Okay. Because it doesn't matter if they're not successful in toppling this brutal regime today, they will topple it tomorrow. So That's why I say we're past the point of tipping point. And can they do it without the support of the United States? That's difficult. That's very difficult. You know, look at our own history. When we needed the uh, Lafayette and, uh, you know, Kuciusko to come and help us out, they did. Without them, you know, if we didn't have a brilliant military engineer, Kuciusko, Polish general, whose statue is right in front of the White House, if not here, if we didn't have Lafayette, could we, on our own, get our own independence, get our own get our own freedoms back. It's hard to say that. People, freedom-seeking people in the world need help, need help. They always need help. And it's in the best interest of global security to fight tyrannies. If you're sitting there, if you're a Congress member sitting there, and you know many of them have expressed, I didn't want to name any particular one because they're all important. We reached all, to, but Michael Waltz, Congressman Waltz has made public his support for the people of it. It warms their hearts. It sure. warms the heart of the people. It does make a difference. Right now, the media is absolutely deaf. You hear right. nothing. Mainstream media. Except really? for the foreign desk. Except for the foreign desk. Except for the foreign desk. Correct. Of course, except for of the course. foreign desk. But, but Mr. Uh, Bijan, what, so because I, I, I want to be so clear on this, and we're out of time, unfortunately, and we'll always have you two back because we love you here at the foreign desk. Our, our guests, our viewers love you. Um, what then will it take, based on the configuration that you just set up, what will it take from the United States in order to complement what's going on on the ground in Iran? Stop the negotiations. Stop the negotiations. Send well, that's a enough. very big that's, that's enough. And it has no cost. It has no cost. It's zero. Len can correct me. It has zero cost. Zero cost. Quite the opposite. You know, elongating the negotiations makes the government of Islamic Republic more powerful in relationship to the opposing force, the people of Iran. You know, how would you feel if you were an Iranian uh, young person as you are in Iran and you saw the United States reaching out to your oppressor? Two things. You won't like the United States. And that is not a good thing. Iran is the only one of the countries in the Middle East where the government doesn't like United States, but people do, unlike other countries, which, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to get into a lot of examples, but Len, you know, help me out here. Yeah, uh, um, I, with, with respect, I have to correct you. There is a cost and I'm sure the Institute for the Voices of Liberty will help um, uh, subsidize the flight back for the American diplomats out of Vienna to bring mm -hmm. them home um, so that uh, we could get on with sensible policy. Uh, for the I'll be happy to pay that cost. I'll be happy to pay that. I'll go around and, and get my friends to help out to bring the diplomats home. But I, I see what you're saying, and I stand corrected. There is a cost to bring them back, and, uh, and I think that cost is relatively lower than the real cost of no, going no. on with this useless, endless dance of diplomacy for the sake of diplomacy. Absolutely. I mean, really. I mean, yes. this is their own legacy. I mean, uh, Ambassador Sherman, others, uh, they're respectable professionals. What are they going to say to the world? We worked so hard, and look what we accomplished. Absolute nothing. Right. Nothing. Right. Absolutely nothing. Right. Only a higher cost of global security. Because mm -hmm. this regime 
This regime, actually, you know, it really has to be said. We cannot leave China and Russia out of this. No. But that's really, it's a package. That's it's a, a package of menace. <laughs> package of menace that we have to face and we have to do as Americans. We have to do what's best for America. What's best for America, for the Islamic Republic, to cease to exist. Iranian people would be the best friends of America and... Uh, and the two people would be doing great, and Iranian people would be the best friends with the people of Israel. And you know, as I say these words, as I say, and I'm not just imagining things, you know, the, uh, the official press for the Islamic Republic made comments about this and called all of us uh, Mossad's agents. Of course, people do that often and uh, accuse people of being this agent or that agent, but uh, they had reacted to it. They're hurting, Lisa. They're hurting. And if somebody says, so what did you bring back from this mission? I would say, Len, you made the Ayatollah very unhappy. <laughs> very unhappy. So Adam Lovinger, I told him already. You're very happy about it. Making the Ayatollah unhappy makes me very happy. <laughs> I know. It makes Thank me you. very well, happy, too. We are out of time, unfortunately. But um, just want to bring back the conversation to the point of focusing on the people of Iran, the people of all, all nations, really. This is what, what government and politics is all about, is the people. And in the case of Iran, they have been forgotten, and we bring them back to the spotlight, and we will continue to report on their plight and, and wish them well and hope for their safety and security as they take the streets and let the world know that they are fighting a tyranny, a dictatorship, and we will stand behind them. And I thank you both for your efforts, your dedication to this endeavor. And thank you for being such wonderful friends of mine on the show. And we hope to have you back on very soon. For those of you at home who would like to sign up for our uh, daily email, go to foreigndesknews.com. And to subscribe to our podcast, you can do so at youtube.com uh, slash Lisa Daftari. And you can also get the podcast on Spotify and Pandora and wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you so much and see you next time.